0: Here's a quote from Miles Davis. I have always wanted just the best players in my group, and I don't care whether they're black, white, blue, red, or yellow. As long as they can play what I want, that's it. Welcome to our Jazz Backstory Podcast and The Color of Jazz Part 2. My name is Monk Rowe and I'm pleased to share more interview excerpts from the Phileas Jazz Archive at Hamilton College. In our previous episode, we heard from Louis Belson, Clark Terry, John Hendricks, and Lionel Hampton, who offered anecdotes about the role of jazz in fostering positive race relations. I had made this statement during that episode. Despite the social ills that plagued America, a sense of spirit and camaraderie flourished between musicians. I stand by it but recognize that certain decades presented situations that challenged the spirit of oneness on the bandstand. To begin this episode, it would be useful to gather a sense of what music, jazz in particular, could mean to African Americans growing up in certain eras and locations. Cecil McBee was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1935, and has become one of the most respected bassists in jazz. Cecil grew up with four siblings in a single-parent household, and shared a story of that experience.
1: I think my music began when, uh, now that I've realized that this could be my responsibility, that is, to take... Pressure of mom, given my own individual needs, I built myself a shoe shine box. Right, she gave me a couple of bucks. I bought some polish. I made a little piece of material, cotton material, and a brush, and I built this thing. Right, you could put your foot on top of it, and I would shine your shoes. So, uh, right, uh, right to the right of our House were the railroad tracks, right? A system of about eight tracks that, you know, provided, you know, uh, travel between West Coast and East Coast. On the other side of that was the other side of town. (laughs) And I built, I took that box, not knowing what the deal was, walked across those tracks and went into that area and started shining shoes. Right? And, uh, and apparently I did a good job because I'd get 15 to 20 cents, sometimes a quarter. And, uh, and uh, quite frankly, if I made over a couple of dollars over, let's say, about three or four hours of, 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 uh, of uh, work, I would take that money back and give it to my mom. See? And a gentleman uh, took a liking to me. Um, and I, I ended up working for him at his fruit stand. And he sold tomatoes. His name was Jim Hill. He sold tomatoes. So my job was to, when the trucks would bring in the tomatoes, I would uh, sort the tomatoes out. You know, we call them, cold the tomatoes. But uh, one day, I'm, I'm about maybe 10 and a half now. One day, I'm uh, in the back facing a truck that had brought in a lot of produce, various assortments of produce now. And suddenly I found myself in the bottom of a barrel. Somebody picked me up and threw me headfirst in a garbage barrel cussing me, I didn't know what those words were, but I have a scar on my leg now for that. You know, uh, it was the first event of me uh, uh, suffering some effect uh, that said that, why in hell are you here? And Jim stood in the way and told the guy, look, leave him alone. And uh, so the guy walked away, you know, and uh, so I got out of the barrel and left myself off. And so that was the beginning of life for me because I'll tell you, even at the, that early age, I felt that it really, you know, uh, you know, occurred to me that I could hurt somebody if they ever did that to me again. So it was Jim, I, you know, I, I became very good friends with his son, you know, and uh, I worked there for about four or five years until uh i think i was 13 or 14 then i went elsewhere so that's what i did until i discovered my my base
0: okay were you anxious to get out of town so to speak
1: yes yes after that incident and (laughs) excuse me uh referencing your, your the initial for your question, uh, given my neighborhood, there was just something about it that was uncomfortable for me. I had no idea what it was, but romantically, there was something else out there that uh, would uh, uh, provide comfort as an individual uh, that really by now needed to express himself somehow. I didn't know what that was, but I felt that I needed to be able to speak and express myself. Uh, uh, necessary to continue to evolve. So I began thinking of, uh, as a matter of fact, a couple of times I walked down to those old tracks. This was the Santa Fe Railroad. I walked down to the tracks. Thank God, with no trains coming. I would stand in the middle of the tracks and look down at, at, all the way to the end of that uh, of the conclusion of the tracks, the two tracks where they meet at a point. And I said, one day I'm going to go that way. No. yeah. When I got to New York, I, as I mentioned before, you know, I was ready to play. I had no idea at the level that I was, but the fact that I was feeling, I was a quality, experiencing a quality of self-worth through my expression, you know. Yeah. That was the, the greatest thing for me. It wasn't about who I was playing with or what I was, it was that I was, I was now exemplifying those moments in my earlier period, where I lived, we call it up on the hill, where I needed to, you know, feel something to do something. Now I'm, I'm experiencing the, 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 the reality of, of that.
0: Right. You found and, and, the. Uh,
1: excuse
0: me. You found the, um, the end of the railroad track, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I found a groove.
0: Cecil's discovery of the base enabled his escape down those railroad tracks. His description of the trash barrel and his protective employer reminds me of the Clark Terry story from our previous episode. Keyboardist Doug Carn witnessed the magnetic power of black music when he played for a YMCA dance in Pensacola, Florida, early 1960s.
2: I tell you, once we played at the YMCA downtown, you know, so it was the first black band quote unquote to play at the white ymca and i think this was 61 you know and uh so maybe 62 so we playing at the white ymca so i'm playing white records you know and the main thing was the beatles because the beatles were the hot new thing you know and some of the Beatles things I really liked, you know, you know. By, by the time of Sergeant Peppers, you could say I was a Beatles fan, but I liked some of the stuff they was doing. And the, the kids didn't dance to any of it, except when we played Twist and Shout. And if I was thinking that that was the Isley Brothers song, you know, so who was a black group. So they danced to that. So during the break, we went in the little room they had for us with Coca-Colas and fruit and sandwiches and stuff. So the director and a couple of the students came back there, and the director said, uh, Mr. Doug, the band is very good and professional, and uh sounds real good. But do you think when you go back, you could uh, play uh, some of your people's music. So the girl said, James Brown. And the the boy said, oh, it's ready, you know. You know, and they start calling all these black groups names, so I figured out what it was they wanted, you know. So the director said, look, Doug, I could lose my job, you know, I'm going out on a limb, bringing a a black group here, and y'all out there playing the goddamn Beatles. Now, you go back out there and play some of your music, your stuff like you know you're supposed to do. So uh, we went out there and uh, did uh you know you make me want to shout, shout. Oh, they loved that, you know.
0: Jazz in the 60s and 70s increasingly reflected the turbulent times and the relationship between black and white musicians and their audience could become contentious. Part of it was justifiable sense of ownership and a desire to make socially relevant music. Drummer Max Roach expressed it in this manner, I will never again play anything that does not have social significance. We American jazz musicians of African descent have proved beyond all doubt that we are master musicians of our instruments. Now, what we have to do is employ our skill to tell the dramatic story of our people and what we've been through. End quote. Jazz historians dub a certain portion of the music created during these decades as free jazz, which provides us with this episode's vocabulary word. We might well ask free of what? All music is built on certain expectations, including rhythm harmony, song form, and established instrumental sounds. The free players experimented with loosening or abandoning these parameters, enabling more freedom in their improvisations. The results often sounded foreign, aggressive, or angry to the ears of swing and bop fans. I've always been curious how and why this style developed. Bassist Henry Grimes, and drummer Rashid Ali were young men during this time, immersed in the new, outside-the-box music. The the free jazz that was happening in the 60s in New York, did it come together, did you guys used to sit and talk about music and say, well, if we played this way, this could happen? or, Or did it mostly just happen on the bandstand?
3: No, uh, we didn't, I didn't really, we didn't ever really talk about it. We just did it, you know. It was like, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, you know, and the guys that I was hanging out with, you know, we we didn't sit down and say that we're going to play in and we're going to play out and we're going to tie mm-hmm. and and play mm-hmm. without bars or we, you know, it was just something that we did, something that we heard and something that we listened to. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. It, it happened spontaneously, you know, yeah, I think.
2: Yeah, that, uh. Uh, we, got, we, got, we did a lot of things but it was never talking and saying uh, you know, that now,
3: now let's play this you know, uh, it was just something that we all wanted to do, man, because we, we all knew what bebop was you know, because we listened to it and we listened to it forever and uh, it's just evolution to change you know I mean, just the the, the the days and the times that we live in was different from the way it was when Buried was living or the way it was when, 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 when Satchmo was living. Or, mm-hmm. you know, it was a different time, you know. And uh, our music reflected what was happening at that time. You know, that's what I think. And, uh, and so it, w- it was time to play something different because everybody was in a different frame of mind.
0: Can you be specific about that?
3: Well, oh, say, say Rosa Parks, you know, got on the bus one day and decided that she wasn't going to sit in the back of the bus because she was too tired. Right? And, uh, say, like, A bunch of service guys was on a train, and we, and we was all from, we was all from New York and Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and we got on a train going down south to, to uh, join a a unit in the south. And on our way down south, we get off at a train station, and we go, and we and we get off because everybody wants something to eat. They're hungry, and they. And they walk to the door, and they see a sign says, Colored that way, whites only. You see signs like that, you know? And and uh, they just go inside where the white place was and start taking stuff off the shelves and invading stuff, and and everybody gets detained and get in trouble or whatever. That kind of a thing was going on, right? So... The music reflected that, you know, it reflected the hard time that we, that's why, but maybe they would say that like we were playing angry music or whatever they might say it was, but it really wasn't. It was just reflecting the time of day it was. We were not the same people as those people who lived in that bebop time. We lived in a different age. Everything changed over time, you know, people lived differently. And the mu- music reflects the way you live. That's what I think it was.
0: Even the established artists who continued to play bop or mainstream jazz found that presenting their music could come with consequences. The late pianist Mike Longo was the sole white player in Dizzy Gillespie's band from 1966 through 1973. Here's an excerpt from his recent book, The Rhythm of Unity, co-authored with Dorothy Longo, And Jocelyn Duffy. I'll employ Clark Terry's substitution for the n-word in this reading. Through racial division and enmity in America, the basic laws of physics and jazz seem to have gotten lost. To a certain faction of blacks, I was seen as an Ofe. A faction of whites called me Nigerian lover. In a Pittsburgh ghetto, we were scheduled to play a street concert. As our limo drove up to the stage, I could see people in the crowd glaring at me. On stage, I found myself and the piano surrounded by four FBI agents and four Black Panthers, all guarding me. I looked over at Dizzy and James Moody, who both seemed visibly concerned for my safety. In that moment, something in me said, "'Boy, if you've ever played the blues!' You better play them now. Ownership of an art form is a topic well beyond my pay grade. One thing we can say, supported by the progression of jazz through recordings, is that the major innovators in this music were African-American. Even the celebrated saxophonist Phil Woods recognized his role in the jazz canon. Well, you um, had said in one of your liner notes from a recent CD that uh, there's only a handful of players that change jazz history
3: essentially i think that's
0: without uh, me stroking your ego or anything where do you think you fit in there
4: well i'm a practitioner i've never changed jazz history i mean i I, didn't, I i am a bearer of the flame i like to keep the bebop flame alive in that mm-hmm. sense but i don't just play bebop i i i, I could consider we play that that dream set i was talking about playing a piazzola. yes and, uh, the very i i kind of I'd like to consider myself a complete musician uh, since I'm classically trained. Uh, uh, But as far as finding any new way, I mean, if I could have changed the course of Western music, I would have done so years ago.
0: (laughs) As we head to the last few bars of this episode, I'm pleased to offer relevant opinion from Vincent Pallot, Senior Archivist at the Rutgers Institute of Jazz Studies. From our 2017 interview, are there any um, jazz myths that bug you? Yeah.
5: I'll tell you one right away. But the black musicians are better than the white musicians. And, and you know, I'm sorry, man, but you cannot tell me that Buddy Berrigan ain't bad. Buddy Berrigan's bad. <laughs> All right? <Yeah. laughs> man, Benny Goodman can play. Artie Shaw can play. I mean, all these cats... P. Russell can play. I'm sorry. You can't tell me black musicians are superior when, when you got cats like that. And, and that goes true for today. I mean, I... I it, to me, the whole... Now, I'm one of those who do feel that jazz is a black music. I mean, I know, I've heard that controversy also, that mm-hmm. it's not. Uh, but, no, I think it is. Based primarily on the fact that, you know, if you look at its main movers and shakers... They all seem to be African American, and um, you know, yeah, there are wonderful players of other you know ethnic groups that can play the music, and that's wonderful. I mean, it's no different than black musicians playing Bach or Mozart. I mean, that's why not? I mean, they can do it, sure. You know, but but they're not trying to claim the music. No one. I never heard a black person say you know Bach was black or Mozart was black. You know, so maybe somebody has, but uh, I've never heard it. So, yeah, I, I, that's a myth I, I really wish would just die, I mean, and, and never come back up again, because uh, it's, it's, it's nonsense, <laughs>
0: really. Like most complex topics, there are no easy answers or absolutes. In today's jazz world, the racial issues have mostly worked themselves out, and it rarely becomes a topic of conversation with younger players. Don't forget to check out the Phileas Jazz YouTube channel, where you can view these interviews in their entirety. My continued thanks to my tech experts here at Hamilton, to Romy Bertel, and to the orchestra in a nutshell that provides our bumper music. Now when I need the perfect wrap-up quote, I know John Hendricks can provide it. Here's John, the humanist, speaking about his father and his own view of the human race. I'll see you on the flip side.
4: Oh, he was—he yeah. was something. I saw him stand up to a sheriff—a sheriff down south—with a gun on his hip mm-hmm. during the days when they would, people were minced every day.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: He physically pulled the sheriff up out of his chair for an insult. Or was no, uh, he had—he had pushed us off of uh, two wooden planks into the mud because oh. this guy wanted him, for he and his wife to pass, and so my brother and I stood on the, one of the planks and. To let them by, he said. He said, uh, "Get off this uh, sidewalk, you know. Get all the way off." You know, I said, "Well, why? Why? There's room for you to pass." He says, "Oh, you're one of them smart niggers." Huh? I was visiting them from Toledo, down in Kentucky. So he, he went and got the sheriff, and the sheriff pushed us into the mud. So we went home and told our father, and he took us down, went to the sheriff's office, and said. Sheriff, I want to talk to you. And he says, Yeah, Reverend, just a minute. And he kept writing, you know. My father stood there about five minutes and he said, Sheriff, I want to talk to you. He says, I heard you, Reverend. He says, Just wait a minute. So my father picked him up. My father was a big man and stood him up. And the sheriff was startled, you know. He said. And we we're waiting for him to reach for his gun or something. And he says, all right, what is it, Reverend? And, and my father says, don't ever put your hands on my children. And the sheriff says, all right, all right, Reverend. That was unbelievable. <laughs> I, I couldn't understand that. How could he do that? But he did it, yeah. and, and it went smooth, Nothing and nothing happened. My father had a, a, an aura mm-hmm. and an, an authority about him that people immediately respected. When he died, by that time I, I had married an Irish girl. When he died, I took my wife to the funeral. And when I, went, came, when I drove into town, that town was buzzing, you know, because uh-huh. in Kentucky. And they stopped me a couple of times and said, what y'all doing here, boy? And they're looking at my wife. And I said, I'm John Hendricks. I'm here for my father's funeral, Reverend Hendricks. And they said, oh, Reverend Hendricks, okay. Uh-huh. And I went to the funeral. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. And at the funeral, half the town was there. And fully a half of the people in the church were white people. That's how respected my father was. And I remember uh, sitting with him one night and there was, there was a local white preacher who used to come over in the evenings and sit and talk to my father. They would be sitting in these rocking chairs on the porch. And one night, you know, the preacher says, well, Reverend, he says, I, I just wanted to discuss something with you. And my father says, well, what was that? He said, well, I just can't help it. He said, no. I just feel that my people are are better than your people. And, you know, the rocking kept on, you know, and I'm, I'm waiting. And my father said, well, Reverend, he said, do you believe in God? And so the white preacher said, well, you know I do. And my father said, well, then, What's your problem? And the rockin' kept on. <laughs> and not another word was spoken. <laughs> and I said, Woo! <laughs> you got right to the heart of the matter. Uh-huh. Cause that's the key to what we we still talk about a problem. Uh-huh. There is no problem. There is no racial problem if you acknowledge God. Because if you acknowledge God, then you're looking at another child of God. Mm-hmm. So what are you talking about? If you're going to separate from that other child of God because of this mythical term you have here, you are uh, you are acting in an ungodly way. So when people ask me about race, I say, what time does it start? <laughs> Ha ha ha!